Good morning. Good morning, church. It's a good day. Ask all you talkaholics, go ahead and you can take a seat. We're going to start. Hey, Terry. Well, we're in our Heroes and Villains series. And I thought it'd be kind of fun to uh, look at some heroes and villains from, from my era back in the 80s. I was about 5 to 15 during this time. So we've got Papa Smurf and Gargamel. Anybody watch the Smurfs when they were younger? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Three apples high. We've got He-Man and Skeletor. Any fans there? Bringing back the memories. My sister used to like go off and play like this. She's kind of weird, but Optimus Prime and Megatron. This is one of my favorites. The Transformers. Yeah, Transformers. Good stuff. And then we got the Karate Kid. Daniel Russo and Johnny Lawrence brings back the memories. And then if we go back to the future, we've got Marty McFly and Biff Tannen. It's good times there, kind of dating myself, but it's all fun. And today we're going to talk about Samson. How many of you have heard of Samson? Probably more of you than that. This is kind of the participatory part. What comes to mind when you think of Samson? Hair, he's got hair, long hair. Like, why don't you model that for us? Just, yes. Is that why you wore that? Just for you. Oh, nice. <laughs> Looking good. The Samson had hair. What else comes to mind when you think of Samson? What's that? He was a Nazarite. Very good. A woman. You're not saying Samson was a woman. Yes, Delilah. What are some other things that might stand out? Strength. He was a strong guy, right? Samson was definitely strong, and we're going to talk about some of these things. So, was Samson a hero, or was he a villain? What do you think? Yes. It's a good answer. It's a good answer. There's different characterizations of Samson kind of all over the board. One is that he was a hero of the faith. Samson was a hero of the faith. Another characterization is that he was a man-child. He's a man-child. He'd have his huff and puff, and he'd get angry and go off and pout and do all kinds of stupid things because he didn't get what he wanted. And another one is he was an arrogant, duplicitous, womanizing trickster. She's kind of an interesting character. How do you go from a hero of the faith to a, a womanizing trickster, duplicitous? It's just kind of, kind of sparks all these kinds of ideas in your head. But here's what we know about Samson. He is uh, the last recorded judge in the book of Judges. Uh, his story is found in Judges 13 through 16. And as with anything, like I'd encourage you to go read it if you haven't yet. Don't just take my word for things. You want to always go back and check the Bible and make sure what I'm saying is actually true, Right? So with that, I gotta say, I, I watched the movie Samson from like a couple years ago, I think it was. Have you guys ever seen that? If you guys, I know there's some people that don't like to read the Bible, they like to get their understanding and knowledge from movies. Like, holy cow, that is a bad one to go because you get a completely different picture of who Samson was 
than what you get in the Bible. So it's always good to go back and check what the Bible actually says. But Samson has great physical strength, and it's contrasted with moral weakness. He was physically strong, but he was morally weak. Now, when I was a kid, like, I think Samson was probably one of my heroes. Like, I wanted to be like Samson. I think part of that was probably because he's big and strong, and he beat up bad guys. Right? Like, most young boys kind of want that. And I had, like, the Sunday school version of who Samson was in my head. So, like, I realized he kind of did a couple stupid things with Delilah. But he, he beat up the bad guys, so that was good. And so it's not as simple as that. And so as we were looking at potential people to, to do for this series, like, I thought Samson is a great guy to, to look at, and it's exciting. And then I read the story again, and I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, I don't even know what to do with this story. It's just like, it's kind of out there. And after reading it, I think I've got more questions than I have answers which is okay because it causes me to wrestle with God a little bit and wrestle with the scriptures. And that's actually, it's a good and a healthy thing. But we're going to look at the story of Samson. And we start in Judges chapter 13. Uh, We see that the angel of the Lord appeared to the wife of a man named Manoah. He appeared to Manoah's wife. And there's a couple things I just want to notice right off the top. When you see the phrase angel of the Lord in the Bible in the Old Testament and the Lord is all in caps, that's a reference to Yahweh. It's kind of replacing Yahweh with the Lord. So we're not talking about an angelic being, but we're talking about a physical manifestation of God. And we call these theophanies, where it's a visible manifestation of God. And a lot of theologians believe this is actually an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ that Jesus came in these forms as the angel of the Lord. And this is a Christophany. And we see this in uh, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush. That was the angel of the Lord. We see this when uh, God appeared to Abraham and told him that he would have a son, and through his seed all the world would be blessed. Those are these times where this angel of the Lord. All right? And now in any case, when the angel of the Lord appears in the Bible, usually it's something kind of signaling that something is significant is about to happen. Something is going to change. There's going to be a great thing that happens, an announcement that's going to kind of change the course of things. And also, I just want to make a note that, note that the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife. He appeared to his wife. And notice this is a very patriarchal society. And that's kind of a weird kind of thing. And he didn't appear to her just once, but twice. And I just, I think it's important to note that because when things are unusual like that and God appears to a woman, like it might have something to say in our time as people are debating things like this. And you look at the roles of men and women, I just think it's important to note things like that. So that's kind of a side note. We're not going to really dwell on that at all. But I think I just want to take note of that. But before the Lord appears to Manoah's wife, we find out that she's barren. She's unable to become pregnant, right? And she's told that she'll bear a son. And he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. So through his whole life, he's going to be dedicated to God as a Nazarite. And Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, which means consecrated or separated. So Samson would be set apart to the Lord. He'd be set apart to the Lord. And the requirements of the Nazarite vow uh, we can find in Numbers chapter 6. And basically, it comes to three things. He was to give up wine in all alcoholic drinks. He had nothing from the grapevine, so that would rule out some of us in this room today. So Samson was set apart. He could have no wine or any kind of alcoholic drinks. He was never allowed to cut his hair. 
Some of us are saying, I wish I had hair to cut. But he was never allowed to cut his hair. And this was the, kind of the physical thing that set him apart from everybody else. And he was never to go near a dead body. I'm not even a father or mother or brother or sister, somebody close to him, because if he did, that would defile him. And this is all part of the Nazarite value. You give up wine, you never cut your hair, and you never go near a dead body. So, when his wife gives birth, God blesses Samson as he grows up, and, and Samson's first actions appear in chapter 14. And it's important to note these because in biblical literature, a figure's first words and actions are usually significant because they typically reveal that person's character. And so this is what we read in chapter 14. It says, One day when Samson was in Timnah, Timnah is a Philistine city, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. And when he returned home, he told his father and mother, A young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. Sounds a little entitled, don't you think? Like, seriously, dude? Go get her for me? Like, we think some of the generation nowadays are kind of entitled, and, and if we're really honest, like, most of us are probably pretty entitled, too. But this isn't, like, a new thing. This kind of goes back to the beginning of time. But a couple things. Recognize the woman he sees as a Philistine. Okay, and it is generally unacceptable for an Israelite to marry outside of their circle of Israelites. Now, Samson is supposed to be a judge over Israel. He's a leader over Israel. And not only is he looking outside of that circle, but he is looking at somebody with the occupying power over Israel, which is pretty unacceptable in those times. And here he is as a leader of Israel. And note that his request was a demand. He wasn't really requesting, it was a demand. And in this, it reveals a great lack of respect for his parents, for his family tradition, and for the tradition of Israel, like right from the get-go. So Samson's story begins as he begins to make preparations to marry this Philistine woman from Timnah. And as we, we'll talk about this story, we'll, we'll go through some things, but we're going to note some of his exploits along the way, because Samson did some pretty incredible things. And it's interesting to take note of these. So, one, he killed a lion with his bare hands. He killed a lion. As he walks towards Timnah, a young lion attacks him. And Scripture says the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him, and he ripped the lion's jaws apart with his bare hands. How many of you guys could do that? A couple. How many of you guys want to try to do that? <laughs> All right, I'll let you guys do that. But that's kind of an extraordinary feat. So he makes several trips to Timnah, and on another trip, he's going back to Timnah, and he turns off the path to look for the lion's dead carcass. And recognize, again, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to go near a dead body, but he goes off the path to look for this carcass. And as he finds it, he finds that it is filled with bees, that bees have made honey inside the carcass, Right? And he scoops into that, and he eats the honey from it. So first of all, like, gross. That's disgusting. Like, who would do that? But second of all, he's not supposed to go near it. No, actually, I looked up this thing with the bees, because I thought, that's kind of weird. Does that really happen? And I don't know if this was the actual bees that 
were there or not. But there's actually a thing called vulture bees. And, and they don't produce, like, they don't use pollen like other bees. What they do is they eat the liquefying flesh off of rotting animal carcasses. And that's how they make honey. So just, you know, that's a nice tidbit to take away home. Like vulture bees, like God's magnificent creation. Eat the liquefying flesh off of rotting animal carcasses. Anyway, we'll go on. At his wedding celebration to this Philistine woman, no, there's a couple parts in this story where there's a suggestion that Samson has drank wine. It doesn't explicitly say that, but a lot of scholars believe that he did because uh, kind of his character and what he was doing in the circles he was in. But in the seven-day celebration, the bride's parents give Samson 30 young men to be his companions. And right away, Samson begins to instigate trouble with them. He makes up a riddle in which only he would know the answer. And he tells these men, if you can solve my riddle by the end of the celebration, I will give you 30 sets of fine linen robes and festive clothing. But if you can't solve it, then you have to give me the same. And so his riddle was this. He said, out of the one who eats came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Any idea what that is? The lion... The honey, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? That's not really a fair riddle, right? That's like Bilbo Baggins saying to Gollum, like, what's in my pocket? What do I have in my pocket? It's not fair. So these guys are angry. They try to figure it out. They can't do it. So they go to his wife-to-be, and they threaten her. And they said, if you don't give us the answer to this riddle, we are going to burn down your house with you in it. Like, you're going to die. So that's a little bit of a motivation to get her to do something, right? So she goes to Samson, she entices him, she kind of gets on him, she nags him a little bit, and Samson gives her the answer. So she goes and tells them, they come back to Samson and give him the answer, and Samson is furious, he's angry, and he runs off and pouts because he's in a huff. And then scripture again says, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. But when he does, Samson murders 30 Philistine men from a distant village. And he takes their clothing to give to his wedding companions. So one of Samson's great exploits is that he murdered 30 men for their clothes. For a bet. What a great and noble judge of Israel, right? And the interestingness through this whole ordeal, like Samson goes off, like he never actually finishes the wedding ceremony. He doesn't consummate the marriage. So the bride is kind of in this place where she's kind of disgraced and they don't know what to do. So her father gives her to Samson's best man as a bride. And she's not actually Samson's wife. So some time has passed. Samson thinks about her again as he went off to live with his mom and dad again. You know, like the man-child. And then he goes back and he thinks, I'm going to go to my wife. And so he goes to Tim and he takes a young goat as a present because that's kind of what they did in that time. And then he goes to her father and says, I'm going into my wife's room to sleep with her. And so her father has to explain what happens. And Samson again is enraged and he says, This time I cannot be blamed for everything I'm going to do to you Philistines. And I don't know why I think of like the weird accent kind of thing when I say that. But when I read that, like that's kind of what, like Ivan Drago kind of thing. But then Samson goes off and he catches 300 foxes. 
And he ties their tails together, and he fastens the torch to their tails, and he lets the foxes run through the grain fields of the Philistines. So in doing this, like he burns up all the grain from the Philistines. That's probably going to catch somebody's attention. So the Philistines aren't real happy. And they have to find out who it is, where to go. So they find out it was Samson and why he did it. And so then they take Samson's uh, wife, or the one who was supposed to be his wife, and her father, and they burn them to death. They burn them to death. Samson gets mad again. He kills a bunch of Philistines, and then he goes and he hides. And so he just killed a bunch of Philistines. Uh, they're not going to just let that go either. So they go and look for Samson. They get the men of Judah to come and bring Samson to them, which they seem pretty willing to do. There isn't any uh, hesitation, according to the scripture. They just go and they have a conversation. They bring Samson up in, in new ropes. And when the Philistines see this, like they're excited. They start shouting in triumph. They think they've won. And the scripture says again, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon Samson and Samson snaps the ropes on his arms like burnt strands of flax, like really easy. And then he finds a jawbone of a recently killed donkey. Again, note he's forbidden to go near a carcass, but he finds a jawbone of a recently killed donkey and he kills 1,000 Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey. I have no idea how you even do that. How do you kill 1,000 guys at once? It's kind of a crazy story. But right after this happens, like, it was hard. I'm sure he exerted a lot. But right after this is when we see Samson first make any mention of God. Is after this incident. Because he's thirsty. And with a hint of defiance and seemingly taking credit for what just happened, he cries out to the Lord, You have accomplished this great victory by the strength of your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of these pagans? And I don't know why, but God, for whatever reason, seems to give Samson what he wants. And water flows from a hollow in the ground. And it, Samson's able to drink from it. And as humble as he is, and Samson calls this spring, the spring of the one who cried out. So he names the spring after himself. And soon after this, we find Samson spending the night with a prostitute in a Philistine city. Word spreads that he's there. The Philistines come and gather around to get him. And in his exit, somehow he carries away the doors of the town gate along with the two posts in bar. Now these are like massive doors into the village, into the city. And he's able to carry them up to this hill, which is kind of a crazy, crazy thing just to demonstrate the power that Samson had through, through God. And as the story comes to a conclusion, Samson falls in love with a woman named Delilah, and she becomes his undoing. So the Philistine rulers discover she's with Samson. They go to her. They offer her 1,100 pieces of silver each for each of them if they will get her to find out the secret to Samson's strength so that they can overpower him. And she goes to work, and three times she asks him what the secret is to his strength. Three times he tells her an answer, and it gets closer to the, the real answer each time. And three times as he's sleeping, Delilah does to him exactly what he tells her to do in order to weaken him. 
And then while he's sleeping, she yells up, Samson, the Philistines are coming! And he wakes up and he breaks the bonds like easy peasy. But it makes you wonder, like, if she keeps doing that when you tell her this, like, why do you keep... I don't understand. But finally, like Delilah pouts and nags, and she says, how can you love me when you don't tell me the secret of your strength? And Samson is worn out, and finally he tells her his hair cannot be cut, for he was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. Now, and Samson at this point, I believe, thinks he's probably invisible. He's broken his Nazarite vows already, like, we'd guess he's probably drank wine. He surely has been around carcasses and touched them, which were against the Nazarite vow that he was under. And one more time, Delilah does to Samson exactly what he tells her would weaken him. One last time she cries out, Samson, the Philistines are here! And Samson jumps up. But this time, Scripture says, when Samson woke up, he thought... I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize that the Lord had left him. He didn't realize that the Lord had left him. You know, sometimes you look at this and like wonder, like, is God going to leave me? And I think it's important to note that really Samson left God a long time ago. He'd done things his own way. He repeatedly broke the vows that he took, uh, vows that set him apart to God. And God leaving was God finally letting Samson have what he wanted, what indicated he wanted time and time again through his actions. So God took away his protection. And you know, sometimes God does that with us. Sometimes he'll remove his protection from us because we've walked away again and again, we haven't responded, and sometimes this is the only thing that will kind of grab our attention, right? And some of us, we're here because of moments like those. We're here because we were at the bottom of the bottom, and God got our attention, and he grabbed us, and he showed us reality, who he was, who, who we are, right? Has he done that with you? So Samson's captured. The Philistines then gouge out his eyes. They take his eyes out and they place him in heavy chains. And he eventually is taken to the temple of Dagon, the Philistine god. And he's brought out to the people so that they can laugh at him and delight in this great trophy. Dagon, their god, has beat the god of the Israelites and delivered to them this trophy of Samson. And as Samson is brought out, he asks a young servant there to place his hands against the pillars of the temple so he can rest. And in this time, he says one last prayer. He says, Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. And with one blow, let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. So he put his hands against the two center pillars that held up the temple, and he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. So Samson appears to have been humbled a little bit, right? He's humiliated, humbled by the Philistines. And he seems to have come to a place where he maybe finally understands that it was the Lord that gave him his strength. That it was God who has power, and it was God who can ultimately decide his fate. 
But even in this last prayer, we don't see an attitude of remorse or of confession or of repentance. It's a prayer of revenge. Let me kill them because they took my eyes. But in this last act, he destroyed the Philistine temple as it came crashing down on him and Philistines there, and he killed thousands inside. And in his death, he killed more Philistines than he did throughout his entire lifetime. It's kind of a weird story, isn't it? Just kind of when you kind of scratch your head and like, what do I do with this? Because it's not like, it's not a happy ending. Sometimes you got to kind of wrestle with the text, like, what do I get out of this? Like, I don't know. This is just weird, and I'm sitting in this place. Like, I don't know what to do with it. And I still have questions. I've got questions. Like, I want to know, why did the angel of the Lord appear to Manoah's wife? That just seems like a waste of an appearance. For Samson? Like, what really significant happened out of that? Like, I don't get it. Like, why would God come down and give her a son just for this? Like, surely something better would have come. Why did he do that? Why is Samson applauded for his faith in the Bible? In Hebrews 11, he is listed with the men of faith, his great men of faith. Like, surely there is somebody better they could have selected from? Why is Samson in there? I don't get it. I don't understand. And I have this question. Might God have had a different plan for Samson than killing people? So listen, like, if Samson is under Nazarite vow, and God gives him strength and Samson kills people, something he's not supposed to do according to his vow not go near a carcass, why would this be the method of God's deliverance for Samson and for the people? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. And I don't understand why. If that, might God have had a different idea for Samson than what we assume to be? And there are a number of directions we could actually go to learn a lesson from this story. Um, like playing with temptations, like playing with fire, you're going to get burned eventually. Or, or violence begets violence. There's a cycle of retaliation and revenge that just kind of escalates and, and nothing really good happens. Or Samson was in this period where he was under the law and the law told of retaliation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And Jesus said something very different. He said, love your enemies. He says, do not resist an evil person. And if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer them the other cheek also. Very different. But here's where we're going to go. Many commentators note that Samson's story is not his own, but it's really the story of Israel. That Samson, more than any other judge, embodied the tragedy that was Israel at that time. Born by an act of God from birth, blessed to be a blessing, And yet he continually rejected that special relationship and calling, and he squandered the gifts that God had given him. And I think that comes back to us. It comes back to us, because there are times we're reading this story of Samson, and we're like, Samson, what are you doing? You idiot, you buffoon, like, come on, wake up. Like, that's stupid. 
Or we look at Israel and we see time after time after time after they reject God and they're doing their own thing and you think, what is wrong with you guys? You've seen God move after all these different times. He's, he's done these miraculous things and you continually go the other way. Like, come on! Wake up! You guys are so dumb! And yet when we think about it, we do the same types of things. I do the same types of things all the time. Like, we do dumb things. We make stupid decisions. At least I do. Anybody else? A few, maybe? I make stupid decisions. And within each of us lies the capacity to be a hero or a villain with every decision that we make. Within each of us, we have the capacity to be a hero or a villain with every decision that we make. Craig Rochelle said this. He said, just as Samson had potential for greatness, he squandered that potential again and again through foolish decisions. He gave in to his emotions instead of following God's leading. He lunged after immediate gratification instead of obeying God. And he lost sight of his blind spots, which ultimately cost him his sight. And you know, we're not so different from Samson. We're really not so different. In fact, we have a lot in common. Like Samson, each of us has been set apart by God. We've been set apart by God just like Samson. Paul says in Ephesians, when we believed in Christ, he identified us as his own by giving us the Holy Spirit. He has purchased us to be his own people. And the Apostle John says, see how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. We've been set apart. We're his people. We are his children. And because we've been set apart, we've basically been given a new identity. You are a chosen people, Peter says, God's very own possession. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. You have a new identity in Jesus. Jesus said the world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it. But you are no longer part of the world. I chose you. I chose you to come out of the world. So it hates you. And here's the, the thing, like, what we do, and I think I've said this before, like what we do comes out of our identity, out of who we think we are. And, and scientists or psychologists are finding out that more and more, like the decisions that we make are emotional. And we use logic to, to back them up. So we act out of our emotions, act out of our, our sense of worth, act out of what we think we need or that, and then we use logic to justify them. So everything comes out of who we think that we are. And Samson rejected his identity, or at the very least, he didn't embrace it. And you know, there are a lot of times where I try to find my identity in a lot of things that don't matter. There are a lot of times where I find my identity in something other than who God made me to be. I try to find it um, in the approval of other people. That is my default that I'm aware of, and so I want people's approval. I want them to think well of me. 
And sometimes I'll find that I'm actually moving toward that and I'm doing things because I want other people to approve of who I am rather than God. Or sometimes I might find my identity in what I accomplish. And that might make me do things. Anybody with me? I try to attain it by what I do. And I need to be reminded again and again and again of who I am. I need to be reminded that that God loves me. I need to be reminded that God doesn't and hasn't given up on me. I need to be reminded that he has plans for me. And I've lived a relatively, according to most people's standards, a pretty good life. I grew up in the church, and I need, you know, I, I, I pretty much, like most people would say, I have my life together. But I need to be reminded again and again and again of who I am. And the thing is, like, when we look at Samson from the outside, like, we can think, like, dude, you're missing it. You're missing it. You just don't get it. And you don't get it. And we want to say this to him, like, if you only knew, if you only knew, if you only realized who you are, if you knew how much God loves you, if you knew what he has in store of you, or for, that you are the desire of his heart. And if, if God wants to say to you right now, I believe he wants to say this to you and to me right now, if you only knew, if you only knew who you are, if you only knew how I set you apart for good things, how much I love you, how much I desire for you, how much the plans I have are so beyond what you could grasp. If you only knew, just embrace who you are. Embrace who I made you to be and forget about all the other stuff. And because of our identity, because of who God has made us as children, as his people, he has given us a work to do. He's given us purpose. Because of who we are. So being before doing, the being always comes first. Sometimes we jump to doing because we think we have to do things in order to gain God's approval. He flips it and says, no, you are this, so do this. It's very different. But Paul says in Ephesians, we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Mission in partnership with him. And he says, don't copy the behaviors and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And it is so easy to get caught up into the world, to to value the same things that the world does, especially this American dream culture, that that same kind of thing where you think you've got to attain wealth and do this stuff and, and live in this luxurious kind of thing. It is so not God's plan. And sometimes we fill ourselves up with all this stuff thinking it's going to satisfy us and we're left in the same place where we realize it it actually does nothing. We just want more and more and it just fulfills less and less. But imagine what Samson could have done. Imagine what Samson could have done with all of the potential given to him by God. Imagine what he could have achieved had he embraced who he was and lived out his purpose simply with who God created him to be. Imagine what he could have done. And imagine what we could do if we did the same. If we did the same, if we embraced who we are because of Jesus.
Imagine what we could do as a church together. Imagine what could happen if we all worked together and lived this out. If, if we loved people like Jesus, if we were to let go of our insecurities and our comparisons, but simply resting in and believing what Jesus says about us. Imagine what God might do if we gave with generosity. Imagine what walls might come down if we continually stepped out in faith. So much. So much. My question to us as a church is what might be holding us back from moving into what God might have for us? Is it fear? Fear of giving up some things? Fear of what could happen if you stepped out in faith? Fear of looking stupid? I know that's one of my fears. Fear of failure? Fear of not measuring up by somebody's standards? Fear of of ridicule? Or maybe shame? Shame for something that we've done in the past believing these false ideas, misunderstandings about who God is, God is, and false ideas that, that you're not good enough, that you're worthless, that you can't attain to anything. You've messed up and God is done with you. Are we holding on to that? Is that what's keeping us from going forward? Because it's all garbage. You're a new creation in Christ. And he's got plans for you. He's got plans for me. He never gives up. He never, never, ever. He's always wanting to spur you on and encourage you and let's say, let's do this. We can do this. I've got more. Stop with your limited thinking. All that stuff is garbage. We embrace our identity in Jesus and Just live out who he made us to be and let the rest go moment by moment, minute by minute, decision after decision, one decision at a time. And one of the things I'm learning and it's still as hard for me is like God is all about the journey and the present moment. And sometimes I like am looking into the future and thinking I'm getting way too far ahead of God And he just wants this one moment. And if I'm faithful in the moment, he's going to be faithful with everything else. So who did God make you to be? How did he wire you? What purpose does he have for you? And this is the hard part because this takes time. It takes time. It takes connection to Jesus. Sometimes we want to go, 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 go. And we miss the whole being with Jesus being in his presence, letting him speak his love and affirmation over us, letting him speak the truth about who we are. And we miss that, and we jump to the do, but once we let God speak into our lives about who we are and just be saturated in his presence, spend some time like, I've got to do this daily, or at least regularly, again and again, then... I think what we do will just come naturally.
out of who we are. And you realize that God doesn't ask us to change the world. Some of us think we have to like have this great big following in order to do anything significant, and that's bogus. That's garbage. He doesn't ask us to change the world. He doesn't ask us to be perfect. He doesn't ask us to produce results. The results are not up to us. And that's so freeing once we get that. God simply asks us to let everything else go, to embrace who he is, who we are, and to follow him. He takes the lead, and we follow, and then he takes care of the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray that you would break into our world, that you would reveal who you are, that you would wipe out the misunderstandings that we might have of you, the false beliefs that we believe from the lies of the enemy, that we would embrace who you say we are, that we would believe you, God. Help us to repent, to change our thinking to yours that we would trust you and trust you enough to live out the life that you have for each of us because of who you made us. God, I pray that you would bring healing to those who are broken. I pray that you would be able to to help those who are struggling with the past to let go and look towards the now, the moment, and the future of what you might have for us. And God, I pray that you would help us to be aware of the spiritual world around us so that we can resist the devil and flee from what he tries to put in front of us and we can embrace what you have, your thoughts, your love, your direction for us. Lord, we are lost without you. And sometimes it's, at least for me, it's easy to just kind of go and just do things by by rote. Lord, help us to be aware of your involvement in every part of our lives, what you want to say in each moment, what you want to say during the difficult times where we're struggling or we're trying to, to make sense of life or when things happen or when we are just in a dark place or maybe even in the high places. God, give us a sense, the ears to hear what you would have to say to us. And give us faith that can move mountains. Give us courage that can take the next step even when we don't know where we're going, but we're just trusting in you to lead and we just want to follow. And God, may we impact the world, beginning with those around us, our families, our neighbors, our community. God, live through us. May we be your hands and feet in everything we do. And as we wrestle with this and just different things about it, because I'm sure our minds are kind of going in different areas, God, I just pray that you would speak peace and comfort over us. And just let us know it's okay. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know everything. But you just ask us to live a life of obedience and trust, and we want to do that faithfully. So we ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.